minutes. Like when I was telling people I was going to break the world record, they were looking at me down. I was crazy when I first started saying it. And reporters and stuff were looking at me like, oh, yeah, right. Well, you know, if anybody can do it, it's going to be Carl. I'm like, all right, watch. In two years from now, you come try to shake my hand. Okay. Remember, remember this. So there's a lot of people out there who remember that too. Cause I was saying it, I wasn't quiet about it. I was talking it. I said, I'm breaking the world record, you know? So a lot of people didn't know, but I was talking it for years, you know? So it was just like, you know, you, I just believe that if, if you, you speak it into existence. Hi there, folks, and welcome to the 99th episode of the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham, and if you haven't been with us before, then welcome. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. So we're getting closer to 100 episodes. We've got a special episode for you today and another one coming up. And then we're going to have a little pause. We think we're just going to have a bit of a review and reflect and have a little think about what next for the podcast and the content that we create. So we have a really special episode for you today, but very much in the spirit of everything we've tried to create in the podcast, speaking to people who've been there and done it and have explored the territory at the top of the summit around high performance. So I hope you can take something from this conversation and the previous conversations that might help nudge you along about how you're creating performance for yourself and in your work and pursuing the goals that are in front of you right now. This week's guest is one of the most outstanding athletes ever, Mike Powell. Now, Mike has held the long jump world record for the last 30 years, taking the mark from the legendary Bob Beeman, who held that record himself for 23 years. So the record stands at 8 metres 95, or in old money, 29 feet 4 and a bit inches. Now, when I tend to do keynote speeches, one of my favourite things to do is to actually measure out Mike's record just to illustrate the extraordinary feats like elite athletes like Mike are capable of. And it never, never fails to amaze me or the audience. And Mike broke that record at the Tokyo World Championships in 1991 in one of the most tumultuous tussles with the equally legendary athlete Carl Lewis having played second fiddle to Carl for so many years. And in this conversation, Mike describes in such a colourful and engaging way how he went about pursuing the title, using Carl as a motivator, how he tapped into a coach that could take him to another level and how he harnessed sports psychology long, long before it was commonplace. If you can, perhaps before you listen to the episode, have a look at the link in the show notes. It's a YouTube clip of the competition and you serve this as a, either a reminder or to soak up for the first time what I would describe as one of the best head-to-head sporting competitions of all time. It will certainly prime you to understand just what happened on that night in 1991. Look, I'm, I'm waxing lyrical enough here, but with good reason. Mike was pure energy to talk to and shared the fire throughout this conversation. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. What a privilege to have you on. Um, Followed your career, uh, celebrate what you do 
by measuring long jumps wherever I get a chance, triple jumps, long jumps. There's such a tangible thing to, to be able to measure and it always conjures up a, a response from people who's just like, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can I, can I ask you straight off the bat, um, what, can you remember the jump? Can you remember that world record jump? Oh, like it was yesterday. 30 years ago, 30 years ago this year. So you remember it like it was yesterday. So is that vivid, was it? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, it was it was a turning point in my life. And um, for the first couple of years, I probably watched the video every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, um, but since then, you know, um, I don't think about it so much, but other people ask me about it. So I have to revisit it. And um, as time has gone on, I've I've gotten to look at it in um, a, a a little bit different of a way, you know. So every time that I do uh, an interview, I try to describe it a little bit differently, you know. So um, so it's still it's still kind of new, you know, to me. But every because every time I watch it, I get goosebumps. Well, that's amazing to hear you you um you can appreciate it that much so when you were watching it back every every day for a couple of years was that you trying to understand it to replicate it or to revisit the moment uh, um all the above <laughs> part right. of it, the fact I, I was trying to look at it technically to see what i was doing and i found many faults in it because um, people said it was a perfect jump. I said, no, it wasn't. It was just, I had I had a good takeoff and had a lot of speed into it, but um, my landing wasn't um, the way I wanted it to be. And um, also, um, my steps weren't quite on. So I had to chop my steps some, so I lost a little bit of momentum also. But, um, and then also, it's just, it's, I mean, how many people can can have one of their greatest moments of their lives uh, captured on 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 video and get a chance to look at it whenever they want to. Yeah, yeah, you know, so it's pretty cool. So you've got some emotional recap there. You've got the technical side as well. So can we get into the technical detail before we get into the sort of the actual performance feel? Um, what what was good about it? Obviously the distance, but what what have you understood since right. that, that has meant that eight, nine, five versus say eight, eight and a half meters, which, which would have been ballpark for most of your performances up to that point, or you'd hit eight seventy, eight sixty, that sort of range. But what was the difference? Uh, well, the difference was that, um, well, for one, I had jumped past the world record, on foul jumps about two or three times prior to breaking the world record. So I already knew in my head that I've already done it. I just wasn't able to say I did it because it was, it was a foul. But if you jump as a foul, you still jump the distance. You know, so in my mind, I already did it. It just had merit to make it official. Um, on that particular jump, uh, technically what happened is that, you know, the, the approach is, 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 is all about rhythm. And, and and it's about um, 
dispersing your your speed throughout the approach so that you're not expending too much energy in the beginning but the the the, pipe, the proper amount driving on the back so that by the time you hit the board you're hitting the board at the at the optimal speed with the optimal amount of effort because if you put too much effort into it then you lose you lose at, at the takeoff if you don't get enough speed enough speed going then you have no speed taken to the air so the rhythm was 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 dead on and the track was really, really, it was a hard surface, which was, was really bold well for me because I was able to really use my jumping ability to, to spring off the track. And um, and then, um, you know, I just was able to really just get into a good position at the takeoff. And, um, you know, my, and also just my focus was incredible. I've never been able to focus like that before. Um, like the clarity that I had and what I had to do at that moment. Like people asked me when I knew I was going to break the record. I said, as soon as I stood on the runway, when I started going through my visualization, I was like, oh, this is it. Get going. <laughs> oh, so wow. I felt it. Let, let me pick up on that in a moment, Ben, because you, you mentioned a couple of things there. So, so I, I remember watching the competition. It, I mean, whole, all of Tokyo World Championships was just, was incredible anyway. Um, but that, competition was so hot and watching it back just in preparation of, of talking to you and and seeing the difference between the jump the world record jump and I think one that you'd registered eight and a half meters something like that where your shoulders were up you didn't have that same level of flow right. um but but there was a <laughs> there was an amazing moment where you you launched one didn't you and it was a foul and right so you knew that you were jumping well, but it well, just hadn't quite, you just, you just nicked the plasticine, hadn't you? Right. And the thing is that was typical for me. Um, Carl was a, a perfectionist in what he did. So when he jumped, he rarely fouled. The, he had one foul there at the competition that was unlike him, but unlike like myself, that was a problem throughout my career was fouling. Um, matter of fact, my, my friend Lee Branks, Banks nicknamed me Mike Fowl. You know? <laughs> so I, I left a lot of my best jumps out there. Yeah, because you, you, you're really animated. I remember you were kneeling down looking at the plasticine and you were, you were sort of gesticulating with the officials and saying, oh, no, it's hardly anything. That wasn't me. And um, how, how are you able to, to be so animated and in the moment as mm-hmm. well as then, as you talked about, really focusing down. Right. Well, you know, what happened on that foul jump, um, when I, I didn't, most time when you foul, you can feel it. Okay. You know, it didn't feel, and then it didn't feel like a foul. And then when I went back to look at the, I said, let me see the mark. You know, there's a, there's a plasticine, like clay type surface where it'll leave an indention in there of your shoe. And the indention that they showed me was from an, an Adidas spike. And I was wearing Nikes. Okay. And I was like, that's not mine. That's not my, that's not my mark right there. I'm wearing Nike. That's Adidas. You know, so they missed it. And the thing is, on the video, they had showed that people were like, oh, yeah, it was barely a foul. But I was like, no, the video they showed showed it from the top. The angle of the plasticine 
was facing that way. So my right. foot like here, but it wasn't touching the plasticine. So that, that jump was actually fair. And they, they, they miscalled that one, you know, but, um, you know, for me, I'm, I, I view myself like an entertainer, you know, almost more so than an athlete. So I was very comfortable in front of 60,000, 80,000 people just being myself. And I, you know, I'm, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve. So whatever emotions I have, you're going to see them. Yeah, it, it does. You do strike me as someone who loves the theater of it. Um, <laughs> the moment that the distance was announced, um, you did it almost like an unintended 200 meters. Um, <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit like Usain Bolt running around the bend after the 2008 meter final. Um, it just had that spirit of, of just uh, personal success and wonder, but also was that heightened by the, by the rivalry? Yeah. Carl and I, um, I, in my mind, at least, you know, there was a big rivalry in him. He had somebody who was pushing him in me, but for me, he was my, he was the arch enemy. He was my arch rival. He was the nemesis. He was the person I had to speak. He was the person that I just despised. I, 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 I mean, Carl's an okay guy, you know, but I didn't allow myself to befriend him. I, I demonize him because I know that for me, I compete. I compete better when I'm when I'm angry, when I feel when I feel slighted, and I was I was always like the underdog, like it, pretty much throughout my like my life. I felt that way. I was like a little skinny guy growing up, having to prove myself all the time. So I competed with a chip on my shoulder. So that was a huge part of it. I took it very very personal. So you you actually used it deliberately, as in, yeah, maybe he's quite he's all right as a as a person, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lower my guard. Did you use that to fuel your training? Yeah. I, oh my gosh. I and and at that point, I mean, Carl and I are cool now. You know, when we when I see him now, we talk and we laugh, and and I and I like him. You know, but at the time, I I just thought he, I just made him a horrible person. Everything about him was horrible. <laughs> you know, everything he did was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, he, anything he did, like I said, if if he if he walked into a room and didn't speak to me, then I was like, oh man, so he didn't speak to me. Then if he and he walked in the room and spoke to me, I said, do you hear how he talked to me? You know, so whatever he did didn't matter. I was going to turn around to my benefit, and and that's what I felt like I had to do because it's like competing against Bolt at his peak. You have to do everything you can to get that guy. You know, and, and I said, Carl lost for 10 years and it was, it got to the point where it was almost a, it was a mental thing. Most other jumpers just kind of gave it to him. And I was like, no, man, I don't get down like that. You're, you're another person. You're a guy. And if, if you can beat me, I'm going to beat you. You know, and I didn't look at him that way. I said, okay, when we first start competing against each other, I knew it wasn't ready, but I got better and better and better and better. And it got to a point where I was like, okay, if you're not on your game today, I'm going to get you. But by the time we got to the world championships, I was like, I'm going to get you anyway. doesn't matter what you do. Whatever you do, I'm going to jump further. Because I just felt like, I mean, Carl was a great technician. And I was the you know, world record holder in the, in the, in the um, 100 meters. But I felt like I was more of an athlete and a better jumper. 
So, um, you know, I, I looked at it that way. So I felt like I could beat him. In the 100 meters, okay, I couldn't do anything about that. But I felt like I could beat you in this long jump. So you've got this, it sounds like you had this level of confidence because you'd, you'd, you'd replicated the, the world record, albeit not by the rules of the game. Right. You know, you, 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 just, you just failed it a, a few right. times. You'd mm-hmm. got that massive jump. Um, that that sort of reproduced that at the World Championships. Right. Um, now, Carl registers an 8.91 illegal win, so it doesn't break the world record legally, but it right. leads the competition. What are you now thinking? You know, um, actually, that moment is one of the moments I'm most proud of in my athletic career because – Carl came down to jump the furthest jump in history, passing that immoral number by Bob Beeman. And normally you expect an athlete to go, oh, wow, get this heart and maybe try to pick themselves back up. But at that moment, I knew, I said, okay, that's not it. I'm, I'm still going to get them. And I remember it was, it was weird because my, my coach was in the stands he was up in the stands a little bit. So I was always trying to get advice from him. And we're using a lot of hand signals and stuff. And, and I walked over after the jump, I walked over to that corner of the track to, to say something to him. And it was all these thousands of people. And, and, for, and, for, and for some reason at that moment, it just got really quiet. And I yelled to him, I said, that's not going to win it. And all the people were like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt confident. I said, no, man, because the way I was jumping, I knew that my approach wasn't on, you know, and I knew if I hit my approach, I was going to go. I knew I was going to go past the world record. I knew that. I knew that after my second jump, the jump that you mentioned, the 854, it was really, really easy. And I was just taking it easy on that jump just to get a fair one in. That was, tw- that was 854. I was like, oh, yeah. Wait till I get my run and I start really being aggressive with this. So, um, yeah, but at that moment, I thought to myself, nah, that's not going to win it. And I said, I'm going, and I thought, I thought to myself, okay, thank you, Lord, for putting that win behind him. So it was not, it wasn't legal. So that wasn't like my cue. If, if you're going to do it, it's time to do it now. Don't wait till the last jump. Do it now. And so, um, you know, then after that, after his jump, he was really celebrating a lot, you know, pumping his fist. Yeah, look right at me like, yeah, that's right, that's right. And I was like, woo, man, you might as well call said something about my mom. You know, <laughs> I took it real, real first. I felt like he was calling me out. And um, that just brought up my 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 uh, competitive juices. So my adrenaline was really, really high. You know, um, I say I compare it to the feeling that you get, that fight or flight feeling that you get. When you're like, say you're about to get into a fight and you're just like, you're just like crazy amped up and you're like, uh oh, something about to happen. That's the feeling I have. I stepped on the runway and I knew something big was going to happen. I was charged up and I was focused. I felt like this is your moment because I have visualized myself breaking the world record, man, for years. I mean, for, and from when I was a little kid, I, I always pretend, imagine myself saying, okay, Mike Powell's. 
in fourth place in the Olympic Games. He had to come back on his last jump and beat Carl Lewis to, to win the gold medal. And so I would I would practice that stuff all the time. So the fact I did that thousands of times, the moment was right there for me. And then, you know, you talked about celebration. I practiced the celebration too. So when I ran on the track, I that's what I planned on doing. <laughs> That, that's I've just got goosebumps listening to you describe that. Um, the, the the utilization of another competitor at their peak to to enable you further, um, but also every childhood dream that I've ever heard would sound a bit like what you've described, where you're you know you're scoring the final goal in the World Cup final or something, or you're playing that out in your youth Mm -hmm. but ultimately i suppose that has some use because you you're in a position to say well i've done it before they just have to physically do it did that give you a lot of confidence going into that jump yeah so the the thing is since i had rehearsed that moment in my head so much when the time came i already it's like if you practice something so much, when the moment comes, you just do what you what you uh, have been practicing. So in my mind, I had practiced that thousands of times, doing that at that moment. So it wasn't it wasn't anything I shied away from. I was like, okay, now the time. This is where the rubber meets the road. Everything is. In, I'm in. I'm in great shape. It's a fast track. I'm. It, the, the weather was perfect for me. I was fired up. I was jumping against my my rival. It was a world championships, had the world stage, go for it, you know, and um, because that's the kind of competitor I was. Um, That's the kind of person I am, too. I mean, I feel like if, if like, for example, if a situation, a stressful situation is going on and people are freaking out, I'm just looking for the solution. So people are running around screaming, I'm thinking, okay, what has to be done right now? You know, and so I, I, I pride myself on being able to deal with stressful situations like that. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. So what I've heard from you is about fire, uh, adrenaline, um, that stoking the aggression almost, mm-hmm. which, which in many ways, I think a lot of people, when they're trying to get into a performance state, that doesn't help them because they, that causes some tension. Right. Whereas you're describing the that jump being rhythmic um and flow and 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 everything just sort of uh being easy Mm -hmm. is is there anything because they sound like they're actually quite contradictory you know you you see the you see the runners in 100 meters and they tense up in the final but they were faster in the semi-final that type of phenomenon yeah is there anything that you did in the moments where you are about to start your run-up I know you're, you and many others have sort of rocking back forward routines and various shaking of hands and so on. Is there anything that you said to yourself or any, any trigger that you use to enter into that? Right. Now it's go time. That's my poor psychologist. So what we had done, he asked me questions about what I was trying to do during my approach. And I explained to him what I was trying to do because it's like the hundred meters there's a there's an art to running the the, the two hundred meters. You know, you have to clear the blocks, stay down low, driving out, going to your drive phase, coming up slowly, go to your maximum speed, and at the end, 
you're going to speed maintenance because you're not accelerating more. You're just trying to relax. So the, the and so the rhythm is really really important. Like in the hundred meters, if you lose a step, that can cost you the race. So same thing like in a long jump. If you miss if you miss one step, it throws the whole rhythm off. So what? So in my approach, what I was trying to do was drive out the back really forcefully for for three three uh, cycles, which would be six steps, and then another three cycles of standing up into sprint position. Another two cycles of really attacking the board. And then the last two cycles is setting up the penultimate step for the takeoff. So what my sports psychologist, what we had done, we want to make it feel really natural. So not so much like, okay, I'm doing this now, robotic. We want to make it more natural, almost more animalistic. So what we had done, um, we we found different animals to, um, to kind of signify each phase of the jump of the approach. So the beginning part of my approach, I was trying to be strong and powerful. So I thought of myself as like a charging bull, like, you know, steam from the nose, everything, just a charging bull. And then the second part of my approach, I want to start to stand up and get into a tall sprint position. So I thought of myself as a galloping horse, grabbing the ground, pulling myself up nice and tall. And then the third phase, I want to be light on my feet, but really a, but fast, though, too. So I thought of myself as being like a cheetah, light on my feet, flying 70 miles an hour, you know, across the ground. And then the last part of my uh, um, takeoff, where the approach was the takeoff. And to go far, I was an avid basketball player, you know, and I had to dunk from the free throw line. Yeah, and I heard. That, I heard. And they, I can spend a, like a pickup game. People will be freaking out. It's only fifty. It's only you know, less than five meters away. Yes, yeah, that's, that's easy. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so in order to do that, to jump from the free throw line, you have to go high. You have to go up, and then go up, up to the basket. So what I did in my my visualization, I was a charging bull. I was a galloping horse. I was a cheetah running across the prairie, and then I was me taking off from the free throw line going for the dunk. And on that particular day, photographer, um, famous photographer by the name of Mike Powell, yeah. um, British guy, you know, and um, yeah. he, um, we are good friends. He, and so um, could we've done some photo shoots together, and so we we're real friendly. So he had the really big camera lens, and he was right in the middle of the of the pit. And I told him, I said, Mike, I said, get right in the middle of your of the of the pit. Because on my the last part of my jump, um, I go through a, a hitch kick. The last part, I really try to drive my foot up as high as I can to go for my landing. So I thought to myself, okay, you're the bull, you're the good horse, you're the cheetah, you're you dumping from the free throw line, and I'm gonna take my foot and I'm gonna try to stick it right into his camera lens. So that was what I was trying to do. So when I went to run, and then when I went back, and so before I would jump, I would always go through that visualization. And at the end of that visualization also would be the crowd responding. That was part of it, the ooh. Because like my coach, one of my coaches I had before told me, why do you jump? And I said, why? He said, for the oohs. Come you jump far, everybody going to go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> of what my visualization was about. 
And so when I went through my visualization before that jump, it was like, that was, that was it. I said, okay, you're ready to go. Just go now. And so my visualization was just spot on. You know, I said, so I, and once, like when you're doing the, uh, your, your approach, if you make a mistake in your first step, it's going to throw it off, you know, down the road. It's going to set you up for making other mistakes too. You can correct it, but it's not going to be what it would have been. But on that one, every step that I took was right, which led to another right thing, was led to another right thing. So the momentum of doing things correctly down the runway was coming. And I was like, it was like I was running downhill, like boom, with my adrenaline really high, knowing that, you know, I just fouled one that was about nine meters and that run wasn't even even on really. So um, I knew, I knew. And then once I hit the sand, the crowd let me know because it was like, ooh, I mean, 60,000 people all at once. Wow, it was crazy. I couldn't even hear myself. I was yelling. I couldn't even hear myself yelling. It was so, it was so, it was so loud. And, um, and actually on that jump, I got more hype than I do, than I would normally. And, and when I landed, I would try to hit the sand and then turn my hips sideways to go past where my feet first hit because the first mark you leave in the sand where they measure from. And I was so high in the air, I was used to the timing of it. I was used to like, okay, now here's the ground. But I was so high, I was like, oh, I'm still in the air, but, but my bikes are turning sideways. <laughs> so if you see the video, I landed sideways. So instead of laying my feet in front of me, my feet were over to the side. So I lost, I mean, a good 15, 20 centimeters off of the jump. So it, it, okay. would, have been, it would have been about 9.15 or something like that. I landed straight. Oh, that would, well, I mean, okay, there's so much in there. And I love that imagery. I love that embodiment of uh, an animal or an action. Um, mm-hmm. Just uh, They're just so successful for athletes to simplify it. Right. Uh, as opposed to got to lift my leg up, got to do this. As you say, yeah. I think robotic is a great word. Mm-hmm. It almost also feels like a method. You've got to remember the order and the specific thing. And I think for, for me, your classic is, you know, if you're a hurdler, don't hit the first hurdle. So you think don't hit the first hurdle and then you hit the first hurdle. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I love that. But you were, you were quite you were quite advanced then in terms of working as with a sports psychologist back in the late eighties and early nineties. Now it's now it's common now right. the stigma for want of a better word has actually gone down because more and more people are familiar with it and use right. it and and see it as a part of. Well, if I'm going to train my body, I'm going to train my mind. Right. Um, what what caused you to start exploring that? Did you did you um, seek somebody out? Uh, my coach, my coach, Randy Huntington. Randy is a super intellectual. I mean, he's the kind of person that, okay, anything related to movement or anything, any kind of like, you know, for track or whatever, he's going to know the answer, but he also knows pretty much anything else too. And, um, and for Randy, some people take him the wrong way. Cause they'll think that he's arrogant. But to me, 
the way that he spoke, I didn't take it personally. I felt like, okay, this guy's a genius. This is how he, this is how he interacts. And I'm here to learn. So why am I trying to have an attitude? So when people, some people couldn't deal with him because they felt they took it personal instead of just appreciating his, his brilliance. So he brought a lot of things to my, the, the scientific part to my training. Because before I started training with him, um, I, my best was like 827 or something like that. And I was number six in the world, you know, and I went to, I went to start training with him uh, in 1987, year before 1988 Olympics. And, and we had our first meeting. He said, I've been looking at video of you and, and watching you compete. He said, we got a four-year plan. You're going to break the world record. And I was like, all right, this is the guy I need to be with. The guy believes in me and what I want to do. He knows, he knows what I can do. So whatever he said, I did. You know, and so we were doing like we were way ahead of the game. I was doing like pool workouts back then when people weren't even using the pool yet. That was part of my everyday training. You know, and um on my therapy, I have one of the best therapists, maybe like a lady named Valerie Sinkus. Um, she was awesome using the microcurrent. Way back when, now stuff is all commonplace, but I was ahead of the game, and a lot of it was because of him. He suggested I get a sports psycho- psychologist, you know, because we went to cover every angle. And um, so I, I feel fortunate that I had him. He was a big – I mean, I always had to go out there and jump, but it was a collaboration between the two of us because um, he had the knowledge, and, and I, was, I was a willing participant. I'm not the only one – that could have broken the record. I'm just the one who did. There have been people out there who had the talent to, obviously Carl Lewis, you know, but um, guys like Larry Myricks and Yvonne Bedroso, Dwight Phillips, Saladino, you know, there's the young guys now, Echeverria yeah. and, and, and Gail. The talent is there, but you got to do it at that moment. When it counts, that's hard. I mean, because I tell people, I say, look, hey, it was, it was, it was hard for me, but it's harder for other people because I had to do that just to win the competition. You know what I'm saying? I had to break it wasn't just... just to beat that. <laughs> that's how good he was. I had to break an unbreakable world record just to have a chance to beat that guy. And even when I did break the world record. I have fully expected him to break it on the next jump. I was yeah, surprised okay. that he didn't. Because that's the first time I thought, you know what? That might hold up. I might really win this thing. Because I thought for sure his next jump, he was going to go like 9-10. And then I thought, okay, then I'm going to have to go 9-15. And then I hope he doesn't go 9-20. So that that's my- really interesting. So you you were almost anticipating having to, to, to go up and up. Um, oh, yeah. And that... That speaks to your raw competitiveness of that was great. Celebrate 200 meters bounce about, but then, okay, we're still in the competition and I might still have to produce again. Well, I had a little bit of help because when I broke the world record, I was so happy. I was running around. I just forgot about what was about to meet. I was just celebrating. And, and one of my, my, my good friends is a long jumper from, um, from Australia named David, um, Hubbard. Um, and Hubbard, David, Hubbard, Hubbard, Cubbard, Cubbard, sorry. 
Then we, but he said covered, but it's covered. <laughs> but um, I was running around and David came and said, Mike, I was like, what? Like, he's coming over to like, give me some dap. Goes, Carl's got two jumps left. And I was like, oh crap, that's right. That's Carl over there. And the thing is, it wasn't very hard for me to imagine that because that's what Carl always did. He always came back. When somebody put a big jump, he always came back. And he and I saw it. He did against me and other people for 10 years straight. Didn't lose. You know what I'm saying? So my thought was, okay, I know he'll get this one. I mean, I'm going to have to do the next one. And then I hope he doesn't give me the last one. That wasn't a stretch. That's what I thought was going to happen. Fascinating. That's really interesting. So you've... 895 won the competition. Can I, what well, you've mentioned rewatching the, the performance, right? Digesting it, soaking it up potentially as, as, um, understanding so that you can replicate that. Right. Um, can I ask you what it was like experiencing that peak? But I mean, you went on to, to, um, win the world championships again, but what was it, what was it like kind of going to that peak, but, you know, that's it. That's your, that's your moment. Um, reliving it sounds like a part of processing it. Right. How were you after that big moment? In some ways it was a letdown. In some ways not because, you know, um, everything's connected. So when I did that jump, it wasn't just about me jumping. It was about every disappointment I had in my life. Everybody who ever doubted me. I say any any girl turned me down for a date. Anything. It was to me to show the world, like, I'm here. Respect me. You know, so it was a very personal thing. It, and it was kind of like the jump was more than just the jump. It was a it was my stamp, you know, to declare to that. I'm worthy, you know, and um, I remember that night after the competition, um, you know, I used to like to go out and have a good time, party and stuff, I meet, grab some beers and stuff, hang out. But at that night, because my friends asked me, what did you do? I said, man, I went back to my hotel room and I was in the lobby with my coach and my and my and my therapist and a few other people. And I had like a beer and a half. And I was just kind of sitting there. And I was like, all right, I'm going to bed. <laughs> mm. You know. And um and then and then I tried to go to sleep, and then about three in the morning, my phone started ringing. Um, from calls from all over the world, you know, from the, especially the press back in the United States and everything. So I was on the phone the rest of the night. And then the next day um, I went to the, uh, I had a, a press conference and I was, so I was waiting for the press conference to start. So I was in the main press center and they, you know, that's where there was more newspapers and stuff back then. And they had, they showed me all the front pages of all the newspapers, the big newspapers across the world. And I was on the front page, you know, not, not the sports section, front page, you know, 
of, of in, in London, in Australia, you know, in the United States, all over. And I saved a lot of those, you know, and I realized, oh, wow, this is a big deal thing I just did. You know, there was a lot of things I broke down there, you know, because it was not only breaking the world record, it was beating Carl. And it was it, it was it was perfect for me because it was the underdog and I was comfortable in that role. And and so, you know, I, I like I'm very proud of that now because I talk to not only jumpers, but just other athletes. And they tell me, man, that made me want to do the long jump or that really made me want to compete in track and field that moment. Because it was one of those moments where if you believe and you work hard, you can accomplish anything. And that was the epitome of what I did. You know, so I'm really proud of that because, you know, a betting man would have bet against me. And, and, and rightfully so, unless you knew me and you knew how my training was going. Because leading up to the competition, my training was like, it was crazy. I knew something big was going to happen. And my last competition, my last training session before I broke the world record, um, I used to do a little uh, short approach jump just from six strides. And my best was um, like from six steps, it was like seven meters, 10 or something like that, seven meters, 20. And then on that jump, I went like 780 on my last jump. You know, so I improved, I, I improved like by six centimeters. Wow. Six steps. And I was like, Ooh, I'm ready. That would get you in most Olympic finals these days. <laughs> oh my gosh! You know, <laughs> and and so my so I know I felt like okay, this is the time. I can't. I I told people I came to Tokyo to break the world record. There was no doubt about that. That's what it was all about. It was leading up to that. From the time he beat me at the national championships, I was like, okay, next time I'm going to get on breaking the world record. And um and and another funny thing, this what actually happened was that. That was my last jump session. And after that jump session, we went to a, a, a weight room where they had Kaiser equipment, which is the equipment that, um, that Randy Huntington helped design. And, I, and that's what I trained on. So I did my training session and the guy asked me to sign, you know, um, the board. And I wrote, you know, Mike Powell, you know, um, PB 866, which was my legal PB, even though I jumped 870 something one day it. And then I put 1991 WC for World Championships, 8.95. You wrote that on the on the weight machine. I wrote that on the wall. On the wall. On the wall. Of this place. So a and then proper, I forgot, you, you you had precision in the in your predictions there. <laughs> it's, it's the imagery. I dreamt about it, and but that's the number they came up, and I forgot about it. And then in a couple of days later, they showed it. They showed an article in the paper, and the guy's like, he wrote it down. And that was the proof. And I was like, that's right. I did say that. And the funny thing is, you know, I, I'm just a stupid American. I didn't even know the metric system. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're a 28, one, 11 and three quarters or something. I, I, so. 895 was further than 890. So, actually, when I did the 895 jump, I was, like, running around like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I came back and I was sitting there with Larry Mark and said, how far is that? <laughs> I said, is that 
five and a half or four? What is it? And so he's like, we tried to figure it out. Well, I said, okay, it's four and a half. So I didn't even know. So for me to say that number in, in meters and not even know what it was and then actually do it, hmm. that's what I kind of felt like. It was meant to be. That's amazing. I love that. Um, so what was the, what was going on in the hotel room then? Um, or the hotel lobby? What was going on there? Uh, where you're, you just, oh, I just need to sleep. What happened? What, what was the feeling you had post-competition? It was such an emotional dream. You know, that it just, it, everything, it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh, I didn't have any energy left. It was, you know, because it was a physical thing, but, you know, the emotion and the adrenaline was so much and so high. By the time I sat down, I was just spent, you know. And after that, even after that, I went to go, go compete. In, in Europe about a week and a half later, two weeks later, and I jumped like crap. I jumped like 8, 17. And then I was like, and then I had like, <laughs> three more of me stuff. I was like, dude, I'm done for this year. This, <laughs> the tank is on empty. I'm I'm through. It was, I, bet the meet, I bet the meat directors were like, hang on a minute, 8, 17. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They were, they were, um, they were kind of upset. Good story behind that though. The first competition, well, believe this, my first time over in Europe, I, I, I went over there in 1985 and um, I was going to, uh, to Zurich and I got to Zurich and everybody, I was like a new, I was a puppy, like, okay, just following everybody. What do I do? Okay. Stand in line over there and get your stuff. So I came up, I'm in the line, I go up there and I, okay, Mike Powell, for long jump. And then the guy looked in there and said, there's no long jump here. Next. And I was like, oh, wow. So I didn't have a room. I wasn't in the meet. And so I was like, what happened? And the thing is, at that time, Carl Lewis's manager, Joe Douglas, was doing my meets. So it started to sabotage long before. Oh, and that's so, when the fuel started. That's when the organization yeah. occurred, yeah? Yeah, he was, they knew. They knew that I was coming. And then so and he was doing my meet. So the next meet was Berlin. And I was like, okay, there's a long jump there. I'm in the meet and I'm getting eight hundred dollars. Woo! Wait, man, I'm rich. <laughs> I'm a college student, you know. So I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. Now I'm gonna get eight hundred dollars. And so um, and then when I went to the competition, Carl Lewis wasn't jumping, but he was sitting there on the board. He was sitting at the board on the track. Look, on the long jump board. Yeah, in a chair. And I'm like, I'm like, what's Carl doing down there? And so he was there to check me out. You know, and I jumped like crap. I jumped like 740 or something like that. Something horrible. I wasn't used to traveling. And when I that stuff that happened in Zurich, I I like lost like 10 pounds in like two days and I was all stressed out. And after the competition, I went to get my, like, well, at least I get my hair and dollars. And then I went, and I went to get my money from Joe. And Joe was like, well, the meat promoter said he's not going to pay you 800. He's only going to pay you 300. 
I'm like, what are you talking about? That's I'm supposed to get that regardless of how I competed. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, man. You're Joe Douglas. You have you're the strongest Asian out here. You got car goods. You're gonna tell me they're gonna try to tell you you can't pay me five hundred dollars. I'm like, man, this is crap, dude. So I don't know what was going on with that. Maybe it was maybe it was a coincidence, but to me, like, come on, dude, that was crazy. So the good thing about that is that um, after I broke the world record, the first meet after I broke the world record was in Berlin, the same place he didn't want to pay me for let me see six years earlier. And I told my agent about that. I said, oh, we're going to get him. We're going to get him. <laughs> so at the time, before then, um, my appearance was, was pretty good. It was about $12,000 a meet. And people, and I was like, trying, I said, after I broke the world record, I was like, I'm thinking, man, how much am I going to get paid now? You know, 30000 something like that. And my agent was like, well, regardless of that, we're going to get him. And so we said, okay. We're going to do a two-year deal for sixty thousand each one, and um, and the thing is, the meat promoter—he didn't remember. His name was Rudy Teal. He didn't remember what he did to me, but I did. And I'm like, ah, karma. <laughs> <laughs> sixty thousand, and that five hundred, please. Just a little top up, please. Yeah, just want my money back. Um, so, look, I mean, how did you, how did you keep that hunger? Then you said you deflated. What after? What afterwards? Did you were you able to kind of refocus, realign your goals, focus yeah. again? Yeah. Well, next, next it was, next it was to win the gold medal. And to go, well, for United States purposes, 30 feet is about nine, five, nine meters 15. So that was my goal the next year. And I went to the training, and my training was at a higher level. And my first competition, I went 890. You know, but I heard I, at that meet, though, I, I, I did the 890. The next jump, I jumped. It was a foul, and it was nine meters 15. They measured it. But... Mm. It was really close, so they were waiting to see how far it was. They measured it before they called it a foul, so they told me it was 9.15. But where I jumped, they didn't dig up the sand well enough, so the sand was compacted. So I um, compacted my uh, my vertebrae, uh, L4 and L5. And so from that point, the rest of my career, I had injuries. You know, so, um, and even yet still, I went on to jump 8.99 that summer. I had a great, you know, uh, summer, except for the Olympics. You know, I jumped 8.64 and, and didn't win the gold. But my goals were big. My goal was to, after I broke the world record, I'm going to come back the next year, win the gold medal, jump 30 feet, then start running the 200 meters. And then in 1996, I went to do the decathlon and break the world record, score 9,000 points and retire. So to me, the goals, yeah. my goals, well, I got one of them, but to me, even the world record, 895, it should be at least around 915. 920 that's where it should have been isn't that just the competitor in you though every champion i've ever spoken to they always see the potential for uh, a greater advantage or i could have spotted that as you've dissected your long jump performance the opportunities 
they're always looking for what can add value and oh, it's never quite good enough. That perfectionism aspect, it's always there though, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, it's true. I mean, cause I think it's, um, it's beneficial in a way because it keeps me humble. I don't, I don't look at myself. I mean, cause when I did break the world record, it was difficult for me because I went from not obscurity. I mean, some people would know who I was. I was in the Olympics, you know, whatever. But when I did that, a lot of people knew who I was. And so I was used to going around the United States, like, you know, nobody knows me here. And I remember I was, when I got back, I, I bought a new car, bought a convertible Saab. And I was like, yeah, man. And so I'm driving on the freeway. And then this truck was next to me, like, <gasps> I looked over, he goes, my pal. I'm like, yeah, like, whoa, okay. <laughs> it's different. And um, it's so funny. Later on, on that drive, I'm driving to LA, cop pulls me over for speeding, which I was. <laughs> I'm just like, oh man, maybe he's got to give me a warning or something. And he's writing up the ticket and he's looking down, he goes, you're my pal. I'm like, yeah. Because, man, why didn't you tell me? I would have let you out. I was like, man, I, I can't assume that. I don't, you might yeah. be a Rose fan or something. And give me, <laughs> I don't know. How's that conversation going to go? No, I, 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 I don't want a ticket because don't you know how far I can jump into a sandpit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my life, it changed a lot. And, um, and actually... I had I had developed um, anxiety, um, and uh, I, I I I take medication for that still um, because it was so hard for me to deal with just being in the public's eye. And I was like, I was a very you know extroverted person, and so um, knowing that it was like not nine so much that people would recognize me, but like not knowing. Am I going to walk into a room and somebody like, hey, you're Mike Powell? Or am I going to, like, nobody's going to know. So I'm going to, like, wonder, okay, are people going to respond to me? You know, so it took a long time to adjust to that. And it was difficult, you know. So I, would, I was, I started to have anxiety problems. I had a, panic, a couple of panic attacks. And um, so it was hard. That was one of the downsides of it, you know, because um, it's, it's, it's difficult. Now, I understand why, like, celebrities and stuff hang around other celebrities because they're, they'll know they'll be treated like normal, you know. Um, so, um, you know, see, even now, when I go, if I, if I go to a competition or something or somebody recognizes me and, and they'll be like, can you, can you sign this for me? And they'll be shaking. And I'm like, dude. If you knew how goofy I was, you would not be shaking right now. I'm like the biggest goofball in the world. I'm just Mike, man. I jumped far in some sand. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Thank you for appreciating what I've done. And I and I'm appreciative of it also. But like I said, I'm also humble about it too, and knowing that, you know, I was just I was really blessed to have done what I did in that situation. And um I'm just I just can't believe it's been 30 years. It's still here. So just just last couple of questions there. If I could pick up on that, Mike, that you've said, you know, I'm worthy now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 
you were worthy before. Uh, you just needed the recognition. You needed some numbers to verify that. What do you tell athletes now? What sort of what sort of coaching points do you share with them right. uh, now with the wisdom of time of what you've experienced? Um, well, I do a lot of motivational speaking. And um, the, the thing that I emphasize to people is that if you want to be have success in something, there's four things that you have to do. You have to set a goal and a realistic goal, a realistic goal to you. It may be far-fetched to somebody else, but I feel like if you can see yourself doing something, that means you can do it. And then you have to have a plan, a great plan. And for me, that was getting the best coach, having the best training partners, having the best agent, having the best travel, you know, uh, travel person, you know, the best therapist, everything. And then the obvious thing is to put in hard work because everybody's going to work hard. How hard are you willing to work to get there? And then the fourth and most important thing is to believe in yourself. Because people are going to put you down and doubt you, and you'll doubt yourself. But you have to find it within yourself to believe in yourself no matter what happens. And that was the hard, That's the hardest part, because people can do things, but they, they'll take themselves out of it. So, um, you know, to accomplish something, anything, really, you, and you might get lucky, but luck is a part of it, you know? If you're lucky because you're, you're in a position to be lucky. <laughs> You know, so I, my main message is that you have to believe in yourself and just really look at how you're trying to accomplish something and, and don't be afraid to shoot for the stars. If you feel like you could be a world record holder and you really believe that, then go for that. Mm. You know, and it's like when I was telling people I was going to break the world record, they were looking at me down, I was crazy when I first started seeing it. And reporters and stuff were looking at me like, oh, yeah, right. Well, you know, if anybody could do it, it's going to be Carl. I'm like, all right. Watch. In two years from now, you come try to shake my hand. Okay, remember, remember this. So there's a lot of people out there who remember that too. Because I was saying it, I wasn't quiet about it. I was talking it. I said, I'm breaking the world record. You know, so a lot of people didn't know, but I was talking it for years. You know, so it was just like you know, you. I just believe that if if you you speak it into existence. Hmm. Love that. So four things: having a goal that's realistic, a plan. Uh, of action, put in the work and believe in yourself. Those four, four little nuggets there. It's, yeah. I, I was, I was half hoping that you'd say, whatever you do, start like a charging ball, then a galloping horse, <laughs> then, a, then a cheetah, and then just reach for a dunk and kick, kick a camera lens in the end. Is uh, <laughs> I, I just, this, I was talking to this woman the other day and she, she was saying, I'm weird. I'm weird. I'm sorry. I'm like, don't be sorry. It's good to be weird. Who wants to be like everybody else? So I emphasize the people, think outside the box. Do something different. Think differently. Don't go like the, the way that everybody wants to go. Go the way you think you should go. You know, so um, that's part of it, too. Because like I said, when I was working, when Randy was, was coaching me, we were doing things nobody else was doing. But I was completely with I'm like, oh, this is, this is awesome. I love this. This is the science of it. I mean, he used to have conversations with other, like, really technical coaches. They would talk so far over my head. I'm like, hello, English, please. <laughs> the, the term they're using was like, 
<laughs> so I laugh now because sometimes I'll start using that terminology and I'm after looking at like, okay, sorry, uh, lift your knee. <laughs> you know, keep it simple. <laughs> I was a bull. I was a charging horse. I was a, uh, a cheetah. I was meeting from the free throw line. That's what I did. All you're doing is reporting on what you saw. So give credence to that. It's not all about just the science of it. It's a combination of the two. And if I say, I say, otherwise, if your sign is so good, then you go do it. Let me see. <laughs> you know, which is why now, like, you know, I, I, I coach, but I don't have the top jumpers coming to me. And I'm like, what's wrong with you guys? Did you think I just fell out of bed? Oops, I broke the world record. You know, and it's like, and I had it for this long. I'm like, okay, well, if no one wants to come find out, then I'll just continue being the world record holder. But they'd rather go to these coaches who've never been out there, they don't know what it feels like to fly through the air, you know, going 40 kilometers an hour, you know, and having the land. They don't know what that feels like. They don't know what it tastes like, you know? So that's why I'm, when I was, when I was competing, I had a cheat sheet. Cause I got a chance to watch Carl Lewis and Larry Marks, all a host of Robert Emian, a host of great jumpers. And I was learning everything. And I'll ask them questions and copy stuff and everything else. And these young guys, now they come to me, the first thing they say is, I'm going to break your record. And I'm like, okay, how? Tell me how you're going to do it. And they look at me like, oh, I'm like, tell me, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What's your plan to breaking my world record? Is, and so there you go. You've got somebody's got a goal, but they haven't got a plan. You're, well, they've, they're missing. Do they do the work? And have they got belief? They might have belief in a goal, but the, the without the middle bit about around your four, uh, your four key points, plan and work. Um, are they prepared to do that? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like I said, for, for me, it was a little bit easier because I had a rabbit in front of me. I had Carl out there to go chase. So my now, I mean, there's been a lot of, there's been some good jumping so far this year, though. You know, the guy from Greece, you know, jumping 860. And, um, you know, there's been, there's been, you know, a couple guys in Echeverria have been jumping well already. So, it looks like there's going to be it's going to be a good competition at the Olympics, but think about it for me, I had Carl. Carl was a guarantee a seventy every time, let alone when he went you know eight ninety one. Are those guys going to have that? No. I doubt it. But you never know, though. I said, what one man can do, another can do. I did it, so I mean, someone else can do it. It's a matter yeah, of time. I guess it will be, an, you know, some, some events are hot at the moment, like pole vaulting, middle distance. It's, you know, there's some events just seem to bubble at the right, at a certain time. It, it seems like long, long jump has, hasn't necessarily in that same way of that, that rivalry that you had with Carl that, that, that I suppose created or amplified the moment. Because when a world record gets set, it's it's so rarely alongside somebody else. It's normally just ignites for one person, but right. it just seemed to amplify that moment that you you're able to perform, which is just just phenomenal. Well, you know the thing is, the world record history of the world record in the long <laughs> jump is there's only like let me see in the last hundred years, there's only been like about well not hundred. There's there was a couple guys that were had the world record like in the twenties, but from the time Jesse Owen broke the world record, he had over twenty five years. 
Then Brown Boston and Igor Terevanich went back and forth with the world record for about like about six or seven years. And then Bob Beeman had for 23 and I've had it for 30. So this is one of those kind of records that that, that stand, you know, and um, it's, it's not easy. Easy. That's a long way. Yeah. I mean, when I look at it now, I'm like, whoa, I'm like, I did that. Like, I'm so, yeah, pl- I'm so pleased that you have that reaction as well. Um, I, I did it. I, I measured it out an event um, last week. I, I do that every time um, to, to introduce people to high performance thinking and people will just go, what? And I just quipped. I said, you know, during the pandemic, that's, that's a good day out. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the thing is, it looks far on the track, but when you look at it, like, inside, you know, because my, when my agent did um, for promotional stuff after I broke the world record, he sent out my card attached to it was a ribbon that was 895 and told them, take this and put it out in the hallway and stretch it out so you can see everybody their business can see how far it is. And people were like, no. And so whenever I do my 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 speeches or appearances, or whatever, I put the distance out there. So most times, like I'm sometimes I'll be in a room and it's bigger than the room. Or if I'm on stage, it'll be bigger than the stage. And I'll put a cone out there, put it over there, and then and then when I'm talking, they're just looking, going like, no way. <laughs> like I flew. I'm like, yep, I did. Yeah. It was a low, low orbit flight. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Mike. I'm so appreciative of this conversation. Um, I've admired you throughout your career uh, to hear the energy and the, 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 the style that I've seen you perform with has just been phenomenal. It's so, it was so captivating to watch it. It, um, it, it didn't, it didn't propel me to want to be a long jumper, but it propelled me to want to study, uh, study the science of sport and to help performers jump row, uh, leg it around at splash about, uh, just a little bit better than they could do. And um, to hear you speak about the event, but also the humility that you've got and how open you are, um, it's been really special. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm thank you for saying that. And, you know, the thing is, I get a, a, a joy out of it now because when I look at it now, it's like it's not even me. I'm looking at that competition. So I'm just like, I feel really blessed that I was a part of that. Because it was me and Carl, the whole situation. And I'm just, I'm thankful that I was able to produce or be a part of one of the greatest moments in, 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 in track and field yeah. history. It, it's, it's, it stands up there. I mean, people have great performances, like obviously Bolt and stuff like that. But to have two people going back and forth like that, like a championship fight, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. No, that's exactly my reflection. I was there in the Sydney stadium watching Kathy Freeman. Um, and uh, you could say she was, she was competing against a culture. You know, she, there was that, pr- that level of pressure. Right. Um, r- watching Radisha perform. Um, you know, these sorts of moments that you, there, there was something special about the performance, but this had that co and overt feel to it that rivalry that fierceness yeah. and and it was so yeah. it was so palpable to watch uh it's just phenomenal yeah well you know the thing is i always tell people when i broke the world record that was the 
the the second loudest crowd response I've ever heard. First was Kathy Freeman at the Olympics. That stadium was so loud. I couldn't believe how loud it was. You couldn't. You, it was. It was. Yep. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew. Thing is, for, also, I knew Kathy when she was like younger. When I, when I first time I went down to Australia in 1993, she was like 18. And so I got to meet her way back then. And so um, she came to the U.S. And like uh, after the Olympics, I think, or around that, like around 96 or around that time. And she came and stayed at my house and stuff. Oh, wow. So I had a real personal, you know, relationship with her, you know. So um, so proud of her, what she did. And um, that was an iconic moment, you know. And I was even bigger. Carl and I was more of a personal rivalry, but like you said, that was that was a whole cultural thing, and you know it was so good to see though that the Australians they at that moment they're like it doesn't matter you're one of us we're all we're all Australians they may and you know so um, that was a turning point I think in in uh, in Australian yeah, history. Yeah, you're right. Yours was the classic uh, representation of sport. Um, perhaps, perhaps in many ways, Kathy's transcended sport, uh, became much more about what a country was experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I, that's what I love. I love the sport, man. I love it. I'm so thankful that I'm able to still go to competitions, you know, um, being, a um, an ambassador for world athletics now to the IWF. But, you know, be able to go to the world championships and to the youth championships and, you know, getting a chance to meet the stars of the future and, and, and go get to hang out with the stars of today. You know, and they're looking like, oh, you're Mike Powell. I'm like, oh, man, you're Noah Lyles. You know, like, <laughs> you know so for me, it's, it's fun just to be a part of it still and um, to know that, you know, I, I left an imprint. You know, I did something. I'm sure you did, for sure. Amazing. Mike, thank you. I could talk to you forever. Uh, so fascinating. Got, um, but I don't want to take the rest of your day up. But, and, uh, but Head into the gym right now. <laughs> oh, Mike, brilliant. Thank you so much. Amazing. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Mike. Now, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm on Ingham underscore Steve. And follow along with Supporting Champions work at support underscore champs on Twitter and Supporting Champions on LinkedIn and Instagram. We're also creating some new content on YouTube. Have a look in the description for the link. 